much. And my text this morning is to read the second chapter of the book of Ruth. Um, I'm just, I'm glad to see some faces I haven't seen in a while. I haven't been to nine o'clock service. So good morning to all of you I haven't seen. God bless you. I love you. And there's nothing you can do about it. (laughs) All right. So I'm going to be reading the second chapter of the book of Ruth. And it reads as follows. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, Who does the young woman belong to? The overseer replied, She is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, My daughter, listen to me. Go and gl- do not go and glean in another field and do not go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. Now you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with the people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. Let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered, and it amounted to about an ephah. 
She carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I work with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabite said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him, because in someone else's field, you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were, were finished. And she lived with her mother-in-law. These are the very words of God. Mm -hmm. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this amazing story in which you are moving. Uh, Father, we thank you for the picture of grace that you have opened up to us. Father, by this, uh, by this story. And we just ask, God, that you'd help us enter into the story. And no matter where we are in the spiritual journey today, that you would reach into our lives, that you would reveal to us the incredible power of grace to change lives, to change families, to change communities. We ask that you would do this in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Good morning. It's a privilege to uh, be with you this morning. We're going to dive into Ruth chapter 2. It's a beautiful story that's unfolding. Last week we looked at chapter 1. It's a story, as we saw, of faith. And we looked at a devastated family. We looked at the choices that uh, the leader of that family made. We looked at... uh, a relationship of faith where he really, Elimelech, was really ignoring God. We saw Naomi, who had just become to the point of crossed over into sadness, into self-pity and bitterness, and had begun to blame God uh, for her situation, and believed the lie that he was not good. And then finally we see this picture of Ruth who emerges from her pagan upbringing, from her pagan past, and stakes her entire life on the God of Israel until death. And in that uh, stands by Naomi and walks into a very uncertain future. And we talked about the implications of faith as we think about how we think about God, how we think about our walk with God, how we think about faith is the most important thing about us. 
because it defines how we will walk in this life. And so the story so far is this, this amazing shining star of faith, Ruth, who just stands in this bleak moment in Israel's history as this shining light of faith and trust in the Messiah. Now, we're going to continue today, and the theme today is grace. And grace has this powerful way of meeting us and just destroying every bit of religious pretense that we might have walked in here with today. Every bit of uh, accomplishment for God to recognize that His love and His initiative and His action in this story is the real hero of the story. And so we move from faith to grace and to look at Uh, We're going to see the character of grace. We're going to see the overflow of grace. And we're going to see a response to grace in chapter 2. And it's a a love story. But it's a love story on multiple levels. It's also a practical story of redemption. It's a story of coming home. and And it's a story of pouring that which we receive into the lives of others. So let's, uh, let's unpack chapter 2, uh, knowing that we're, we're zeroing in on the theme of grace. So the first thing that happens is we're introduced to a new character in the story. His name is Boaz. Now, that name uh, means, in him is strength. Alright, so we, we see right off the bat by, by that name that he, we unpack the story, he is a man of valor. He is wealthy. He is influential. In some way, he has stood firm on his ground, on his land, and he has trusted the God of Israel. Um, and uh, the, the, the household that he leads has a totally different outcome than the household of Elimelech. He speaks out loud about the Lord all day long. You know, in our work of disciple-making, we go to Deuteronomy chapter 6, where God says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. But he also says, Talk about God as you walk, as you sit, as you go to bed. It's a lifestyle of always talking about God. And because that Deuteronomy 6 passage is called the Shema, it's a prayer that the Israelis would say, We, in the disciple-making training that we do, we talk about having a Shema life or living a Shema lifestyle. We're talking about God all the time. And this is the way Boaz is. He walks into the the property where the harvesters are working. And uh, we see him working hard with the harvesters. He's the leader of of, of his family, but he's also in with his workers He knows who's working with him. He's aware of others and their needs. And he sets his eyes on Naomi and he wants to know who does she belong with? Who does she belong to? It's not like she's a piece of chattel. It's he wants to know her family. He wants to know her family. And each of us, as we raise up our families, as we talk about our families, there should be a sense of, belonging. There should be a sense of 
we are on mission together. And he has a father's heart. He is uh, generous. We see him generously providing for Ruth. He, he's inclusive. Now, as we'll see later on in the, in the story, Boaz has a past. He has a family as well. And back in his family line is a woman named Rahab. She's the uh, Canaanite prostitute who hid the spies. In the story of Joshua, in Joshua chapter 7, she, and following, she's uh, the one who hid the spies. That's, that's someone who has touched this guy Boaz. So he's already familiar with the story of a foreigner coming in and being knit into his line. He's aware of the foreigner. He's aware of uh, that one who doesn't fit in. And we, we need to be aware of the one who doesn't fit in. Whether they, whether they come here on Sunday morning or it's another part of our life, we need to be aware of those who aren't fitting in. And this guy follows not just the, not just the, the wording of Torah, but he follows the spirit of Torah. Of the, of the scriptures, of the, of the first five books of Moses. So in Leviticus 23, 22, we read this. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and for the foreigner residing among you. I am the Lord your God. So Boaz is, ends up being the, the great-grandfather of David, and he ends up being the great-great-grandfather of Solomon. Now, when Solomon builds the temple, he puts two pillars into the entrance of the temple. One is named after a relative named Jachin, and the other one is named after Boaz. In him is strength. And this guy understands grace. He's strong but he's still humble and godly. He's, he's a pillar in his community. He uses his power wisely. But he knows grace. He remembers where he came from. He remembers uh, who he is. And in that sense, he's also the picture of the ideal father of a family. And more than that, as we'll see, He's a picture of Jesus. Jesus would tell the disciples walking to Emmaus, the whole scripture, the Torah, the Psalms, uh, and the prophets are all about me. Well, this is a picture buried in the Old Testament of Jesus, and we'll come to that in a minute. But let's switch gears and look at Ruth now. Ruth's story continues. She's walking by faith. She ventures into this totally new culture. She has also, it seems, learned the Torah because she mentions right away to her mother-in-law, hey, let me go glean the fields. She knows about Leviticus 23. She knows that that is something as a foreigner, uh, as a poor person, that she can go do. But even though she's poor, her lifestyle commands dignity. She's got a real dignity to her, a strength to her. She takes initiative. 
she is not carrying a victim mentality. She would have every right uh, in our in our eyes to carry a victim mentality, but that's not what God is looking for. That's not what God is uh, calling us to, and that's not what God called her to. But in fact, it is that, I believe, that the presence of God on her that carries dignity. It's her work ethic. It's the way she is serving her mother-in-law. And she is taking initiative, but she remains humble and submissive. She's checking with her authority. At that point in time is Naomi. Naomi is her gateway into this community. Naomi has been her gateway to God, and she is now uh, honoring this mother-in-law and asking her. So we see these two characters uh, who are, in a sense, quite similar. The man is strong, but he's sensitive. He's humble. He's wise. She also is strong, but she is under authority. She is uh, humble and she's submissive uh, to her mother-in-law. So I just want to pause there and I want to ask you a question. Uh, Who are your role models? We've got two role models here. Just jump off the pages of Scripture uh, as the typology of... uh, the, the man of God, the typology of the woman of God. Now, they're also a picture of Jesus and a picture of the church. We'll come to that in the rest of the story. But right today, you can see that these are special people who are walking with God in a, in a way that's profound and beautiful. And so, uh, it reminds me of role models. It reminds me of who do I look up to? I've, I've shared often with uh, you about my uh, mentor and my friend, Jerry Kirk, who's 89 now, who has just gathered his family for Thanksgiving. They had a whole day Saturday. There were 72 of them that were gathered. Now, they weren't all present. There's over 90 in his family, including spouses of grandchildren and uh, the first round of great-grandchildren are starting to get married. Um, and, but they, they were all gathered, and all, every single one of them is following Christ. Every single one of them. And there are pastors and missionaries and all kinds of uh, kingdom-oriented people in his family. And they spent the whole day last Saturday, 72 of them, they had to basically borrow a church to be able to have their fellowship But when Jerry called me on Monday, he was giggling. He had had so, there was so much joy in being able to reconnect with some of the grandchildren he hadn't seen in a while, to watch grandchildren who hadn't seen each other in a while connect, to anchor the entire day around the goodness of God, to anchor the entire day around the scriptures, around worship, around table fellowship, uh, and, and it, It is true that who we model ourselves after will have a profound effect on what happens in our lives. And some of us don't have those, we have those models. They're they're our grandparents or our great grandparents. Others of us have come from broken families and we've had to, in the grace of God, we've had to put things back together 
uh, in the grace of God, but we still can look around. And whether it's a grandmother or a grandfather or someone, I encourage you to be explicit about your models, to be explicit about who in your life has really touched you and transformed you. And then I want to ask you a related question, which is, to whom are you a role model? Because at some point in your life, and I'm not, I, don't, I don't know if this is uh, when you're 18 and you're a role model for somebody who's 10, or you're 25 and you're a role model for somebody who's 18, but at some point in your life, as you begin to anchor your life around the truths of Scripture, you will have a life worth imitating. And then you will be responsible to pass that on to others. To pass that on to others in concrete ways that they can, that they can absorb. So I want, I want you to really think about that. I want you to think about who are the role models in your life. But right about now, we can see in the story, you can see it coming. You know, it's like the divine matchmaker is at work, right? He's put these two people together. You can see it coming. And uh, you can also see that, that they, will be, they will be attracted to one another because they have that common DNA of anchoring their lives around God. So grace starts flowing in this story. And it comes like wave after wave after wave. So the first, the first part of grace we see is uh, Ruth ends up in Boaz's field as it turned out. As it turned out. Uh, lots of places to go in Bethlehem. It's a huge area with hills and valleys. Uh, but she lands in Boaz's field. There she receives interest, also protection. You might, you might think about this, but she was a Moabite. Possibly darker in color, possibly uh, known as possibly known as a foreigner right off the bat, possibly known as an enemy of Israel, and there would be like a bad taste in the mouth about Moab. Worst case scenario would be like, yeah, do you remember how those guys started with incest and so forth? So whatever the whatever the drama is. Uh, she is actually in some danger to be harmed. And that, that may not be a great reflection on that community, but there was racial prejudice or, or religious prejudice or some kind of prejudice against this woman. She receives food. She receives care. She receives favor. Uh, in verse 21, she says that Boaz has invited her to stay not just for the barley harvest, but for the wheat harvest, all his grain. So that's another month or month and a half or two months of time with Boaz. And then we, text, we see in the text that Boaz knows and Boaz says, she's not, he knows she's not under his wings. She knows, he knows, sorry, that she is under the wings of Yahweh. The wings of Yahweh. Now, this, this word wings here literally means wings, obviously. So it appears first in Genesis chapter 1 when the birds with wings were created. All right, so it, it literally means wings. But when it's applied to Yahweh, 
uh, it means a whole lot more. A, a whole lot more. And if that picture of wings is in Psalm 91, right? But the word there, wings, is kanaf. Can you say that? Kanaf. Well, it turns out that wings, or kanaf, also means corner. So if you take a Jewish prayer shawl, all right, would look a lot like this, maybe. We're not sure exactly what they look like. And maybe a lot wider, okay? This is sort of a a modern-day version. But the corner... The corner of this shawl is called the kanaf. All right? And on the kanaf, the Israelis were instructed to put tassels, tzitzit. All right? Now, the kanaf is what David cut off in the cave when Saul was trying to kill him. The kanaf in that scenario meant that David was literally prophetically enacting that God had cut off his relationship with Saul. And he felt terrible about it because he knew as a Jew. Now they would wear these probably with a hole here in the middle. They put it over their head and they'd have these things sticking out on the side under their belt, see? So when the woman who's got 12 years bleeding says to herself, if I just can touch the corner of his robe, she's saying, if I can just touch his kanaf, I'll be healed. And in the very end of the Old Testament, when Malachi says the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings, these wings... He's talking about the prophet is talking about the Messiah who had walked the earth and who the very touching of his robe, the corner of his robe, the kanaf, would bring healing. So Ruth is under the kanaf of the Messiah, under the kanaf of Yahweh. And I want you to just have this picture over you of the wings of God over you as you think about taking communion this morning. But I want you to also, if you've not made the decision to follow Christ as Lord and Savior, the invitation is for you to come under His wings today as you have communion to experience this, this covering. And, and this, this picture will come up later in the story. Um, as, as uh, the kanaf of Boaz, w- Ruth will ask him to cover her. So this, this picture throughout the story of Ruth is to come under the covering of God and to have his favor. Now this link between faith and grace is crystal clear in the New Testament. If you look at the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, it says, Therefore... Since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. So Ruth has held firmly in faith to her God. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. You get this now. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence 
Not in us, not in our religiosity, but in the grace given that comes through faith in Jesus our Messiah, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We have access by faith to grace. Now, Ruth receives this grace, but she does something else. She's flowing in the river of living water, okay, as this, as this grace is coming to us, to her. But she's always, already thinking about administering that grace to her mother-in-law. Because w- watch the story. She comes in. She's truly grateful. She has no entitlement. There's zero entitlement in this woman. She knows the why and the how of work. She knows that everything is coming to her by grace. And she is wildly generous. So she works all day. She collects all this barley. At the end of the day, she beats it with a stick. In other words, she uh, separates the, the barley from the chaff. It's hard work. She pounds it all out, shuffles all the loose stuff off, and puts it basically in something about the size of a bushel. And this measure is, is a profound measure. The ephah is a measure, is a measure of generosity, of when Jesus is talking about it'll be thrown into your lap, a full measure running over, that's a siah. When he talks about when, when Abraham is entertaining God, he gets an ephah of flour, tells, tells uh, Sarah to get an ephah of flour. So when, when Ruth brings an ephah home to Naomi, the picture is this is the generosity of God. This is the generosity of Abraham. And in the New Testament... When we talk about Jesus having a measure running over in our lap, it's an ephah. All right? So uh, it could be, it also means three seahs, the same thing. But Ruth here is loving Naomi lavishly. It's, it's way over the top for what you would normally expect for one day. This is going to be 15 to 30 days worth of food for them. Okay? So this is like a massive generosity. Now get this, Naomi, bitter old Naomi, who's, oh, woe is me, self-pity, she, she's at home doing nothing, absolutely nothing, and the grace of God is poured out on her through Ruth. So this grace starts to heal and transform Naomi. And gradually in chapter 2, Naomi begins to see that Ruth is really a daughter and is one of hers. I don't think this is, this is totally set into Naomi till about now. Because when she came back empty, she didn't even acknowledge the presence of Ruth. I'm empty. Well, if you're empty, like, who's that nice lady with you? you no, know, I'm empty. It was all about her. But now things are shifting. And Ruth is pouring out this grace... So she's catching on. She's catching on to how God is working. And so she doesn't receive this grace in vain. She acts on it. So in 2 Corinthians, here's what Paul says. He says, look, as God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. Do you know that there's a lot of people who receive God's grace in vain? They, they are blessed from above and they receive it in vain. There were ten lepers healed. 
How many received the grace of God in vain? Nine. Only one came back and said thank you. Only one came to faith out of the deal. There was a famous story of, a, of an emergency room doctor in Florida who tried to keep a guy alive and couldn't keep him alive. And he coded out after three or four times to revive him. They let him go. And he was told by the Lord, go back into, go back into the emergency room and pray for that guy. Pray for that guy. 45 minutes later, goes into the emergency room or into the area where they had the body and his arms and legs are starting to go black. He starts praying for him and the guy comes too. Documented on television. I saw an interview with the guy and the guy literally had no understanding that God had given him a second go around. He, 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 didn't, he wasn't thankful. He was just like, yep, I was gone. Now I'm back. Eat, drink, and be merry. No effect. No effect. So Paul warns against this. He says, look, in the time of my favor, I heard you. In the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. And he's quoting there Isaiah 49.8, where the prophet is saying, there are going to be people who reject Jesus. And Paul is simply saying, don't miss it. Don't miss it. So I don't know how God is working in your life. We're all experiencing some pain. We're all experiencing some joy. And it's up to us to see where is the grace coming and to know that the story isn't over. And so question for application is, how have you been shown grace? Make a list of it. In in the... um, in the uh, Ruth family devotional cards that we prepared for Advent, and there's some when you go to communion, you can grab a copy. This week, we're, gonna, we're talking about the gospel, and we're talking about how does grace come into your family. And each family is going to make a list of the ways God's grace has come into your family. We're going to post that on a public place in your fridge or somewhere where everybody can be reminded of the grace of God that has been poured out in our lives. And then the next question is, how can you extend that grace to others? We're going to encourage you to make some Christmas cookies and go to your neighbors and bless them this week. It's a simple exercise where everyone in your family, regardless of age, can translate God's blessing into something concrete and out into our community and our neighbors to be to be like this Ruth here who's passing it on. William Tyndale said this, God gives no one his grace that he should let it lie still and do no good as a result, but that they should increase it and multiply it and show it to others and openly declare it so that outward works provoke and draw others to God. That is the call of Advent. That is the call of the Messiah. And and, and that blessing is our opportunity to go out and show that we have not received God's grace in vain. That's going to be a blessing this week. So, 
What do we learn from uh, Ruth chapter 2? Ruth's faith gave her access to grace. She receives grace from Boaz. She remains humble. She stays at work. She administers God's grace to Naomi. Grace is freely given and freely received. It changes Boaz. It changes Ruth. It changes Naomi. And it's going to change us. And it's going to change our neighbors. Because that is the nature of the hound of heaven. He is generous. And just as Ruth is generous, this is a time for us to enter into that generosity of God. Now, at the very end of chapter 2, we get this interesting term thrown at us in verse 20. We see a new title being given to Boaz. He's called a guardian redeemer. The Hebrew word there is ga'al. Say that. Ga'al. And ga'al is used all through the, the Torah and the Old Testament. It means to deliver from harm. Jacob gives credit to the redeeming angel of the Lord for delivering him from harm in Genesis 48. In Exodus 6, it is the guardian redeemer who delivers Israel from slavery in Egypt. In Leviticus 25, it is the guardian redeemer who redeems lost property. A famine is hit, a family loses their crop, loses their land, a disaster happens. The property is bought by somebody else. Well, the Ga'al redeems the property. The Ga'al also avenges murder. He's the avenger of blood. And finally, the Ga'al redeems the family line. In Deuteronomy 25, there's this thing called leveret marriage where the brother of a deceased brother is charged with the responsibility of having the sister, his sister-in-law have another child to maintain the family line. Psalm 103 talks about the Redeemer taking me out of the pit. Isaiah 59 talks about the Redeemer Messiah. Jeremiah 31 talks about the Redeemer of the New Covenant. And so this picture of a family guardian Redeemer is something that many of us will be called to in our lifetimes. Oscar Schindler was a guardian redeemer, saved 1,200 Jews. All of you who are adopting and fostering children are guardian redeemers. You have taken them out of darkness into the family of God and you are showing them who God is. It is a very high honor that you have to walk in that role. This family here is an amazing family, the Rosano family. They have adopted, there's only 19 in the picture, but they adopted 22 special needs children. All of them special needs. Uh, they live up in Westchester and um, they have a ministry called Shepherd's Crook and they're helping other families make adoptions of special need children. And they've secured safe families for hundreds of special needs children. So the Ga'al is a prophetic picture of the Messiah. Now you need to do three things to be a Ga'al. Three things. You need to be a kinsman. You need to be one of the clan. 
you, you must have the ability to pay the ransom. You can't do it if you're poor. You must have the ability to pay the ransom. And finally, you must be willing to take the responsibility. Now we're going to see in the story there'll be different guardian redeemers and one of them's not going to be willing. And in the Deuteronomy passage, if they're not willing, they take off their sandal and they give it away because they are the unsandaled. They weren't willing to be a guardian redeemer. Now there's a beautiful picture of Jesus here. Let me walk you through it. It must be a kinsman. The, the Redeemer of Israel had to be human. See, if, if Jesus came down as God and performed what he did, it would not count. Why? Because it was a man and a woman, Adam and Eve, that handed the authority of the kingdom over to Satan. And God's original plan was for human beings to subdue the creation. So the Redeemer has to be a human being. Jesus had to become one of us. He was born in Bethlehem because He had to be human for His work to count. Secondly, He had to have the ability to pay the ransom. Now what is the ransom? Well, in this story, it's going to be the land of Elimelech. I don't know what it doesn't tell us what it's worth. But in the larger story, it's the cost of all the human sin that ever entered the earth back to Adam and Eve. And that sin was an offense against an eternal God. So there was an eternal offense that was created and committed. So the only way to pay the ransom is to be eternal. It's the only big enough sacrifice that would be worth it and would pay the price fully for our salvation. So he had to be God. He had to be God. He had to be human. He had to be God. And finally, he had to be willing. He had to be willing to be humbled as a baby, humbled as a human being who sweat and was hungry and was tempted just like us. He had to be willing to be humiliated on the cross. He had to be willing to do all of that for us. And Jesus knew the cost and he still said yes. Jesus knew the pain and he still said yes. So here's how it's captured in the book of Hebrews. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. And then it goes on, For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. So if you've got a broken family, if you've got a broken life, I've got good news for you. The guardian redeemer of humanity, the guardian redeemer of your life and my life has said, I'm in to redeem you. Fully man, fully God, fully humble and willing 
to be punished beyond recognition. So that's the invitation today as we shift into communion is to recognize in this beautiful story this picture of Jesus Christ, this picture of the guardian redeemer who would become one of us, who would give himself for us. So now, of all the bad news we looked at last week, and I I trust you were wrestling with your stuff last week. I know I was. And that you were identifying the ways in which you have you have believed lies about God, the ways in which uh, you have allowed pride or fear or busyness or bitterness or self-pity and even unforgiveness to creep into your life. Well, today, the guardian redeemer says, give that to me. And by faith, come under the wings. Come under the wings of the guardian redeemer of humanity and receive in exchange for your sin, his grace, his healing, and his eternal blessing. That is the beauty of the incarnation. That is the beauty of Christmas, is that we roll all that mess up and we make room in our hearts. And we have, we have our own Christmas this morning before Christmas, which is that we receive by faith all these things that he has done for us. So the prayer teams are going to come up. Whatever's going on in your life, whatever God needs to redeem, whatever you want the guardian redeemer to put under his wings, then come for prayer, come for communion, and just imagine a giant set of wings over these communion tables as you come under the healing, the grace, the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name I pray. Amen.